It is great to be here, and I'm echoing, so let me put this right here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I uh, have the privilege of mentoring Mike. Uh, that's not an age thing, because uh, <laughs> you're probably looking at Mike and saying, man, he's old. How much, how much man, that guy be? And uh, no, it's a, it's a, what it is, is mentoring is really a, a chance for us uh, who are outside. We want to take the burden off of local churches to be, to be helping guys as they're processing through the vision to plant. Um, the, the local pastors here have and are very involved in everything that goes on with planting. But they're also leading and guiding the church, as is Mike. And what we want to make sure is that there's somebody who's kind of outside the context where Mike can just go and interact over over his thoughts, his questions, his experiences, um, and, and feel the care uh, that goes beyond the local church. And so that's kind of my job. So we, uh, I came up yesterday, and we had a chance to drive around Salem, just, just kind of look at his vision through his eyes, uh, pray about it, um, just give us a chance as we continue to interact over, uh, over what God might be doing. And uh, so if you turn to Colossians chapter 3, uh, and as you're turning there, it does give me an opportunity to thank you, to thank you as a church, because you may not recognize it, but you are developing legendary status in Sovereign Grace churches um, for the vision you have for mission in New England, for the vision you have to send out your best uh, for the sake of the gospel, for, uh, for Sean and for Jacob and for Mike, and I'm sure for others. Uh, it's a, it's a costly venture. It's a costly venture in terms of your finances. It's a costly venture in terms of people you love uh, and, and people who are gifted. You send out gifted men um, to plant churches. And so, so I know that, that, that it's a cost to this church to plant, but it's so, it's, you really have a reputation. There are churches who are, being, who are twice the size of this church who are being challenged by your faith. And, and, uh, and we're seeing church planning move forward in Sovereign Grace because of, because of King of Grace and churches like King of Grace who are, who are thinking about the mission of the Gospel more than about just developing and congregating um, and building locally. You do build very effective locally as, as seen in, in uh, the video, but you are also uh, doing extraordinary mission work. So I want to thank you for that. It's a privilege to be here and be with you. Um, I'm just going to read the text here, uh, and we're going to be in Colossians 3, and reading verses 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Today, what we're going to learn from this text is basically how we love one another, how we love people. 
Have you ever had something that you really wanted to do, but when you started, you started to realize in the doing of it how hard it was? And then you kind of decided, ah, maybe I don't want to do that so much. I'll do something else. That's kind of the definition of weight loss, isn't it? Um, the average American starts and stops four diets a year. Uh, I, I told that to my wife, she said, only four? And, <laughs> um, but we, you know, we, 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 we're convinced, I need to lose weight, I want to find a diet, and we do whatever that is, and we realize, oh, it gets hard, it means I can't have something, and then we kind of cheat, and next thing you know, we're off the diet, and we decided, maybe I don't need to lose weight, maybe I look good the way I am. Um, this is the new me, and... Uh, and so we, we, we think we want to do something, but when it gets hard, we find we don't quite want to do it that much. A lot of life is like that. Think about exercise. How many of you are keeping up with your steps? Um, uh, a consistent prayer life. How many times we start a prayer life and find it's hard and stop? Getting up early. Going to get up early now. Going to go to bed early. Date nights. We're going to start date nights. Family nights. Family devotions. Cleaning out the garage. How many of you have made a commitment to stop procrastinating and can't get around to starting the commitment? <laughs> See, all these things you might say, I really want to do that, but then you hit that moment when the want to collides with the hard to, and you just kind of let it go. It just doesn't seem quite that important. Then you get that depressing feeling that you tried to do something, but you can't really ever say you did it. Beginning of this year, I decided that I was going to learn to play the blues guitar. It came down to either political blogging or playing the blues guitar. I thought that would be much safer if I play blues and don't think about politics. Um, so, I went on the internet, found a program, learned how to play blues guitar, started to play. First lesson or two was great, was learning some basic things, and then my fingers started to hurt. If you ever play guitar, you know one of the biggest challenges is you hit that point where your fingers start to hurt because you don't have calluses. And it gets hard, and then it's a little more challenging. And they show you something, and you're thinking, I don't know if my fingers will ever work to play that. And, uh, and you start thinking, maybe I just need to listen to people play the blues guitar. <laughs> but I realized in that process, if I didn't press beyond what was comfortable, what was familiar, then I'd only be able to say I tried the blues guitar. I'd never be able to say I did it. I don't think this applies to anything more than it applies to relationships, particularly to loving other people. If you haven't noticed, loving other people is a pretty important part of being a Christian. When Jesus was asked about what was the greatest thing you could do in this life, He said this, You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 
that no matter what you do, if you don't have love, you really don't have anything. Love is the greatest difference maker in life. I know that this church believes that. I know that this church believes that love is important because I know your mission statement. Here's a quick test. What is the first line of your mission statement? Everybody. That's pretty good. Wholeheartedly loving God and one another. I just saw it in the bathroom. So, <laughs> so I know that that matters to you. Before I became a Christian, I thought, I'm a pretty naturally loving guy. I get along with people. But when God opened my eyes by grace to see my true sinful heart, I realized that I really didn't know how to love people. I knew how to hang out with people. I knew how to tolerate people. I knew even how to have a good time socializing with people. But I didn't know how to love people. I didn't love people. I was selfish. I loved myself. And I was committed to relationships only so far as they benefited me. But Jesus gave me a new heart, a heart that wanted to truly love others. Maybe you had that experience yourself. You, when, when God opened your eyes, you recognized, I really want to love other people. So I jumped in with both feet. I committed myself to loving other people. I was going to be the most loving person Jesus ever met. And then it got hard. So I started thinking, maybe if I... Maybe this loving others thing is optional. If I just love God a lot, I don't need to love people that much. So God's easy to love. It's, he's, he's there and he, uh, he loves me and He does right by me. It's people I have problems with. And so I kind of started thinking maybe I don't need to love others. The problem with that is that God says you can't say you really love Him unless you love other people as well. You can say you tried love, but you can't say you actually love. So God wants to help us today in this passage. He wants to help us learn how to move from wanting to love to actually, really, and effectively loving other people. We're going to see that this is my basic premise. Love is never easy, but because of Christ, love is always possible. Love is never easy, but because of Christ, love is always possible. Let's just pray. Ask God to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we come before You, Lord. We, we recognize the deficiency of love in our hearts, God. We recognize that You've called us to this high calling, and You've laid out for us this calling, and Yet we recognize so often our self-love gets in the way. I pray that today as we, as we meet together before Your Word, You would simply speak to us. You would shepherd us. You would guide us. You would instruct us all that we might be able to be more like You. To love like You would have us love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So in just a few verses, we read earlier... Paul gives a grace-designed process 
to living a truly loving life. The points in this message are essentially going to flow from the verses that we read, verses 12 through 14. Um, So how do we get started in this love process, in this love project? Verse 12, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, context, we're dropping into this letter where Paul is giving some very specific instructions about how to live a life consistent with who you are in Christ. The first two chapters of Colossians speak of what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be a new creation in Christ. What it means to to be redeemed by Christ. And so in chapter 3, he begins to say, well, if this is who you are, this is how then you should live. He says in verse 10 in chapter 3, that we need to put on the new self in the likeness of the one who created us. And so, so he instructs us that something has to change. There needs to be a new self application for us. So when we get to verse 12, we see that this putting on has a particular application for how we love others. He uses a word picture that makes it clear that love is not an emotion, for example. Love is not a personality type. Oh, he's a loving person. She's a loving person. It's not a skill that you can go to a seminar and learn. Love, in fact, begins with a choice. You'll often hear that, love is a choice. This is biblically the same thing. Love begins with a choice. How we consciously go into life. A way we go into the world. The word picture in this verse is someone who needs to do something so they need the right kind of clothes the right uniform to do it. Soldiers going into war need a certain kind of uniform. Nurses going into a hospital need a certain kind of uniform. Firefighters going into a burning building. Football players going into the game. What you put on is essential to what you need to do. That's what Paul's driving at. And he wants them to put on literally to clothe themselves with the right clothes for the work of relationships. If you're going to love others, you need to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Those kinds of things. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list of the kind of character, the kind of clothing we need to wear if we're going to love others. This is the work, this is the clothing we need for the hard work of relationships. So where do we get these clothes? Where do they come from? Well, Paul tells us they come from God. Paul says, those of you chosen, holy, and beloved. You see, if you have been chosen, That means God has set His affection upon you. That means He has has made it a point to come to you and to make you His own. 
Holy means that God has set you apart. That implies that He has done something to make you set apartable. That's what the cross has done. The cross makes us set apartable. It, it makes us holy. We work out holiness through life, but holiness is, first of all, about being set apart. It's about being taken from one place for unholy purposes and made holy for holy purposes. Salvation is being made holy for God and beloved. Beloved speaks of the fact that, that, that God gave for this project. God has invested. He has is, he is tied Himself to you and to me. So if you're a Christian here, God has specifically selected you to belong to Him. He has done the work of making you acceptable to Him. And He has set His affection upon you, affection upon you so that you might live in an awareness of His love. And out of that reality, we live and put on love. As the Apostle John said, we love because God first loved us. That's where it comes from. Now maybe your challenge in loving people is that you don't go out with the right clothes on. You don't start your day conscious of the clothing God wants you to be wearing. Let's face it, a natural tendency is, to not, is not to prepare to love other people. If you're like me, you start your day preparing to do what you want to do. To get what you need to get. You have an agenda. You have priorities. You're doing this. And to the extent that you run into people and they cooperate with your agenda, it feels like love. And to the extent that they don't cooperate with your agenda, it doesn't feel like love. They're in your way. We don't go out with the mentality to love other people. We really, if you think about it, if you're like me, you go out, if at best, that you want people to love you. I need you to love me. That's how I want to live my life. By feeling your love. Or at least feeling your like. I want to be treated right. I want to be accepted. I want to be popular. I don't want to feel put out by other people. I don't want to have other people's mess get in my way. Paul's saying, no, that's the wrong way to approach it. We go out having put on the garments of love. It's a different way to live. Do you go about your day prepared to love? Are you wearing the uniform of love as you go to work every day? When you relate to your kids, are you conscious to put on love? When you're standing in a long checkout line, is love what comes to mind? When you're on social media and you read something that bothers you, does love come to mind? We put on love. It's a conscious choice by faith based on what God has done for us in Christ. 
But having put that on, it doesn't make it easy. That doesn't solve the problem. It's not, it's not, that doesn't make loving easily because there are temptations that come our way. People don't cooperate. People don't recognize, oh, I like your clothes. They take advantage of those clothes. They, they, if we're trying to be loved, loving people, it doesn't mean that God makes them loving toward us. And so we have to go beyond just simply putting on the clothes. In verse 13, it says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Verse 13 is actually two different calls. The first call is the call to bear with one another. Sometimes even compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient people get rubbed the wrong way. They get, they get affected by other people. Other people's sins, other people's mistakes, other people's weaknesses, other people's overlookings. What do we do then? Throw off the old clothes? Put on the armor of God? Now I'm in battle? No, we're called to love even when we're not being loved. But the Bible gives us a wonderful option when that happens, and that's to bear with another person. Now, bearing with people or practicing the art of forbearance isn't, I just got to take whatever comes my way. I just got to endure it. Woe is me. No, it's, a, it's again a, a choice. Something happens and I have an opportunity to choose how I'm going to respond to it. And Paul says you can bear with it. You, other places you see in the Scriptures the, the idea of forbearance. We're forbearing in love. That's a gift God gives us in Christ. Because God was forbearing with us. He did not count our sins against us. He overlooks. Even now, we sin every day. God isn't constantly coming to us and saying, Repent, repent, repent. He's forbearing with us. He knows our weakness. And we can be that way with others. Forbearance is simply the decision to not let something someone else does affect how I express love toward them. So you find out that someone gossiped about you. Probably inadvertently. Probably just got into a conversation and they, they related some information that, that you think was probably more private. You told them in private. Yeah, you could get very offended about that and be very upset about it. Or you could say, you know what? I've gossiped before. I've done that. It wasn't evil intent toward me. There's no real damage in my life. And so you see them at church. You have an op opportunity. Do I look at them and say, that's the person who gossiped against me? I'm just not going to talk to them. I, just, I can't deal with them. Or, do you forbear? Do you say, you know what, I'm going to love them as if that never happened. What they did is never going to affect how I want to relate to them. I'm going to continue to love them. It's choosing not to let the perceived wrongs of someone else shape my view of myself, of God, or of them. That's forbearing. That's bearing with one another. It doesn't mean we hold it for future reference. Just let it go. Not that important. Life has got much other things important for me to get wrapped around what I feel like somebody did or didn't do to me. 
This is a wonderful gift that the body of Christ could use more of and would be great if we practiced more in the body of Christ. We are far too sensitive to the wrongs of others. We're far too sensitive of, of what people do to us. And we don't access this wonderful gift of forbearance. Let's face it, people do things that tick us off. Some people seem to be wired to irritate you. You ever notice that? They may be sitting next to you right now. Now usually what they do, they don't mean it. Or maybe they're just inconsiderate, but it bothers you all the same. Remember this, Paul says, bear with one another. Therefore, if you're having to bear with somebody, there's a better than average chance that there's someone having to bear with you as well. So the church should be full of people who are consciously, actively, lovingly, graciously bearing with one another. Overlooking offenses. Just don't need to deal with it. Don't need to struggle with it. This kind of love isn't easy, especially if the person that rubs you the wrong way is married to you. Or they live down the hall in a room in your house. But it's wise because, frankly, it'll keep you out of a whole lot of stress and aggravation. So many people I talk to in counseling, the things they're upset about, they can't do anything about. The other person can't change it. The other person's moved on. But they're living stuck in a situation that they could just simply say, Lord, I can let that go. I, uh, this past week I was pulling out, I was at a retreat, with, uh, and I was pulling out in our van onto a two-lane road, I guess it's about a 40-mile-an-hour uh, uh, speed limit, and so I'm pulling out of the road, on the road, and there's a car coming, but it's way down the way, and so I'm just going to pull out, take a right-hand turn, it's coming from the left, but as I'm starting to turn, another car pulls out from behind that car and rides along the shoulder to pass that car and comes screaming up on me as I'm making my turn, and then the guy honks at me for being in his way. You know, the first thing you think, I mean, if you're like me, um, you think, okay, what did I do wrong? And I was, I didn't do anything wrong. And, and so then, so this guy's, and he's right on your tail. You know, you can tell the people who just want to let you know they're not happy with the way you're driving. And so we're driving along. I have about a mile to go before I have to take, make, make my turn. And, um, and so, you know, it's a 40-mile-an-hour speed limit. And I'm a, the kind of guy that will typically drive about five miles over the speed limit. I don't want to offend anybody being a pastor, breaking the law. But I usually am about a five-mile-over-the-speed-limit guy. But I just felt compelled in this circumstance to drive the speed limit. <laughs> and so the guy is riding along behind me, riding on my tail the whole time. And I put my turn signal on and might make my left hand turn. And he just lays on the horn as I'm driving, as he's driving away. And I, you know, at first I was kind of like irritated. But then I thought, I feel bad for the guy. Is this your day? Is this how you live your life? You talk about stress. I, I talk to people a lot about stress. A lot of the stress they, they, they have is self-induced by the way they approach what happens to them that they don't like. You see, 
It's wise to bear with one another. Proverbs 19.11 says, this is a great proverb, good sense makes one slow to anger. Don't be stupid and get angry. It's another translation. My translation. Um, and it, it's His glory to overlook an offense. We benefit when we overlook offenses. People who, who forbear just tend to live better lives. And they live lives that are deeply pleasing to the Lord. Jonathan Edwards said this, the spirit of Christian long-suffering and of meekness in bearing injuries is a mark of true greatness of soul. If you're someone who forbears well, there's greatness happening in your soul. But sometimes you can't ignore what someone does. Sometimes there's no way around it. Sometimes people do things that hit us hard and, and hurt us deep, but then love gets really hard. And then we'll all be faced with this toughest part of love. The call to forgive. The second part of verse 13. Paul says, if, anyone, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. This is where love eventually gets real. This is where we tend to want out of the process. This is where you have to get into that scary place where love is hard and risky and messy and there's no guarantee of return for what you do to risk yourself in it. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this call, this call to forgive. It's not easy. But it's where true love will eventually take us at some point. We're going to look with the rest of our time on our need to forgive, our motive to forgive, and our call to forgive. The need to forgive is inevitable. Paul talks as if the need to forgive is common and nobody gets exempt from getting hurt or being wrong. He said, if one has a complaint against another, he's not isolating it if this happens in your church. He's presuming complaints happen in the church and he's presuming that everybody at some point will experience that. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, that it's mutual, that there are times where I might need to forgive you, there are times where you might need to forgive me. Forgiveness really is meant to be common in the church because sin is common in the church. At some time, you're going to have a complaint against someone and at some time, you're going to have the opportunity to forgive. Jesus said we need to be prepared to forgive people over and over and over. Seventy times seven is a lot of forgiving. The presumption in the Bible is forgiving 
isn't something that somebody may do at some time. It's something we all have to do multiple times if we're going to love others. Think about this. If forgiveness is rare in the church, then love is probably rare as well too. If we as a church, and I apply this to my church and my life as well, if I can't point to times I've forgiven or I've been involved in the process of people forgiving one another or someone has forgiven me, then how deep is the love that we talk about really? How deep? Because this is where deep love has to ultimately go. You can't say you love people if you don't forgive them. Now, the best way for forgiveness to happen is for there to be an acknowledgement of wrong, that someone will realize that they're wrong and they'll come to us and they'll confess it and we'll be able to graciously forgive them. But that doesn't always happen. Or at least it doesn't look like it'll happen. Sometimes we're not sure if the other person knows or not and we're, we don't know. And, 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 there are, and you all know these and maybe you've experienced these. There are the tragic, awful circumstances where the person who wronged you either doesn't believe they wronged you or the things they did were so hor- horrific you can't imagine forgiving them. And so I want, in talking about this, I want you to know I, I have that in mind. As much as there are small transgressions and things that we do to one another that can be forgiven fairly easily, there are things that happen in people's lives that are massive, that are life-changing. And the thought of forgiveness is just, it's almost like I can't even begin to consider that based on what's been done to me. And so if you're here today and, and you've struggled with that, I want you to know that I do hear I do know that there are things in my life that are that way where I have to wrestle with, could I forgive this person? Would I forgive them? So there's nothing easy about this, but I'm going to present it the way Paul presents it. So straightforward, let's just consider what the Word of God says and ask God how to apply it to our own situations and our own lives. Because, Because when we're in a place where where we don't know how to forgive. The other person doesn't think they're wrong or they think they were right or they don't understand what they did or they, they, they are no longer around to be able to forgive or we just don't know how to get there. This is where we need gospel-shaped hearts. To be a Christian is to be forgiven by God. Your sins against Him forgiven By his death for you. This is not something we seek or earn. It's the free gift of grace. Forgiveness starts with God, who is the offending party, the offended party, moving toward those who offended him. Us. If we're going to forgive others, we need to have that same heart. We'll have to follow that same path. The people who desire to forgive are often the people who have to move first because of love. 
We need to prepare every day for future opportunities to forgive. Here's something I've learned in counseling people, particularly in marriage crisis, but other things as well. People who wait for someone else to come to them and confess will never be prepared to forgive when that confession happens. If you are here and you're saying, if this person would only come and say this to me, I would forgive them. I will guarantee you, if, they, if you gave them a script of what they need to say and they came and read it to you with sincerity, you would not be able to forgive them. Because you have not prepared your heart. I've, I've sat with people and had one person tearfully confess in ways that are sincere and deep and speak exactly to the offense and the other person, what did they do? They just started bringing up other offenses. Oh, and by the way, since we're talking about this, also this and this and this and this. You'd, there's nothing anyone will ever say to you that makes you forgive them. There's no confession that will ever come your way that will ever create the heart motive to forgive. We forgive because we've prepared ourselves to give because, forgive because we know we have been forgiven. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's not a cathartic experience. It's a, it's a posture of heart where we are always looking to prepare ourselves to, to forgive other people if they sin against us. If you've allowed the gospel of grace to shape your heart, then you'll find you're ready to forgive when someone confesses. But that's all work you do apart from whatever the person did. The motive to forgive is grace. Paul says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. The word translated forgiven here, forgive here is not, it's not just the release of, the, of a debt, which is often in, in the Bible that forgiveness language is, is debt language. I'm forgiving a debt. But the word Paul's using is not simply debt forgiveness. It's something else. It's an extension of grace. Paul is talking about an extension of something that's beyond the debt. If you read current therapeutic writing on forgiveness, one thing that really stands out is this. People are told that they need to forgive in order to get free from the negative effect of someone on their life. And so if you go to a counselor a lot of times and you're talking about how somebody's affected you, they're going to say you need to forgive because this is, this is holding you back. Until you get over this, you're not going to be able to move forward in life. One writer said it like this, when you hold resentment toward one another, you are bound to that person or conditioned by an emotional link that's stronger than steel. Forgiveness is the only way to dissolve that link and get free. And that's a true statement. The therapeutic benefits of forgiveness are real. When people forgive, studies show that when people forgive, it actually affects their brain chemistry. And it can change their mental and emotional outlook on life in general. So therapeutically, it's a sound practice. But this is also where therapeutic forgiveness and biblical forgiveness part ways. Because as Christians, we don't forgive ultimately for our well-being. We forgive for the well-being of another person. 
Think about it this way. God didn't forgive your sin against Him because He was in pain. God forgave your sin against Him because you were in pain. And because your pain was going to be eternal. The cross wasn't necessary to free God from the emotional bondage of our sin. The cross was necessary because our bondage to sin need to be broken. Jesus died to set us free from the consequences of our own sin. He died to make a way for us to be restored to the loving relationship with God that we had rejected by sin against God. Pastor J.D. Greer explains it this way. What makes forgiveness so life-changing isn't simply that it makes us guilt-free. It's that forgiveness reconciles us to God. The world's best imitation of forgiveness can only say, you may go. But God's forgiveness says, please come near. The gospel is a message of reconciliation, releasing us from our sin so that we can come close to God, the sole source of all joy, once again. And and, and the Bible says it's that forgiveness that we need to practice. Forgiveness must always have its ultimate goal in reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is a separate message with a separate commandments and separate ways we have to go about it so I'm not going to try to bring that in here but if you don't have a sense that eventually I could be reconciled to someone then you're not going to have the right motivation to forgive you're going to forgive to get away from a situation you're not going to forgive to restore a situation to truly love to truly forgive we must have in view not simply that a person's wrong against us no longer affects us but that we can somehow, in some way, see a way forward where we can practically, in some way, live at peace with them at some point in the future. Or maybe even we could be close to them. That's what this world doesn't understand. That's what, when, when this happens, the world stands up and takes notice. When the world sees Christians love like this, it has powerful effect. When Muslims in Egypt see Coptic believers repeatedly declaring forgiveness, when extremists attack and murder Christians in their churches, the world takes notice. The world has taken notice. When the families of the people who were shot in Charleston in a prayer meeting declare forgiveness of Dylan Roof. It declares the love of Christ and the world takes notice. When NBA coach Monty Williams declared forgiveness the drivers of the car who killed his wife in an auto accident. It declares the love of Christ. And the world takes notice. God has given this gift of forgiveness 
for the world to see. And we have opportunities to display it. And I think it's the third thing. The call of forgiveness is unavoidable. Paul says, as you've been forgiven, you must also forgive. See, when we, when we feel wronged by somebody, there aren't many options. We can either forgive or not forgive. There is no middle ground. There is no, I'm just going to be status quo. We can either begin to move toward forgiveness in our hearts and ultimately in our actions, or we can move away from forgiveness in our hearts and in our actions. But when we don't forgive, we haven't solved the problem. We simply change the focus. If you've become comfortable, and I may be speaking to somebody here today, and I want you to hear this, because it's God's Word from the God who loves you. If you become comfortable saying, I won't forgive, then you need to hear the warnings of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Matthew 6, 14-15, if you forgive others' trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I don't like that verse being in the Bible. But it's there. And because it's there, it matters. Because it's there, it has authority. Because it's there, it defines reality. We can never ignore it. I've used this verse and I've talked to people who say they love Jesus and they've said, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so. And I've taken to that verse and I've read that verse to them and so what do you think? And I've had people who say they love Jesus say, well, if that's what it's called, I'm not going to do it. I'll just say, I just don't believe. They will reject Jesus Christ rather than submit to that verse. Don't be that person. They will rather hold bitterness and reject Jesus than submit to that verse. The good news is we don't have to forgive all at once. You see, if you don't forgive, your problem isn't with that person anymore. It's with God. But it's not as if God says you have to get there all at once. Forgiveness isn't an emotional experience. It's not a cathartic event. It's a commitment to a process, to the hard work of love towards someone who's hurt you. It's a starting of a journey. Usually it's a small step. Forgiveness is ultimately a lot of small steps taken over time in which somewhere there's going to be a communication of it, but communicating I forgive you is not the end. It's simply... It's simply the next step. We still have to walk it out. Sometimes the difference between forgiveness and unforgiveness is simply whether we're willing to work one day at a time to tear down the wall of bitterness and hurt and clear a path toward reconciliation on our part. Often how the other person responds or the circumstances will dictate how we're able to move forward with the person who's hurt us. Sometimes we can't do things. Sometimes it's 
We have to wait for something to happen. That's understandable. But we can posture our heart and move in our heart toward forgiveness all the same. We can always start the process. In verse 14, Paul reminds us of how we start. We put on love. How do I love in a situation where forgiveness is the ultimate goal? No matter what's happened, you make the decision, I'm going to put on love. I'm going to start the journey of forgiveness and there's nothing anyone can do to stop me. That's a great thing for Christians to say. There's nothing anyone can do that can stop me from pursuing forgiveness. That's radical. That's radical Christianity. Kind of closing with an illustration. I have a friend, Diane. I met at a conference and we sort of developed a, a Facebook relationship and interaction um, uh, she and her husband, uh, a number of years ago, uh, they lived in California, and um, she had, they had a son uh, who was in his early 20s, um, and he worked, uh, he worked at a diner, kind of a place, uh, and um, one evening after work, um, a woman who worked there uh, had car trouble, so he stopped before he went home. How are you doing? Can I help out? Can you? So he... he uh, he, she said, you know, my husband's coming to pick up the car. I said, well, I'll stay with you while he's here and, um, until he gets here so you're safe. And so, so he stayed. The husband, he, what he didn't realize is the husband was, a, was an abusive man. And so when the husband came, he presumed that he was actually coming in on them in an affair. And so the, the husband um, drove up, uh, saw him, confronted him, the guy tried to, you know, tried to back down. Listen, I'm just here. I'm, you know, he wouldn't listen to him. Wouldn't listen to him. Made him, made him kneel down and shot him in the back of the head. Killed him. Cold blood. Um, so they get the news. This man who didn't know their son from anything, misunderstood the situation, ended his life. And so they began a journey. It was a journey of grief having to go through a trial, live it out every day and see that man there utterly uh, unrepentant, defiant. Go from grief to anger. Anger to loss. Bitterness against God. Why did you do this? But God kept at him, kept working on their heart. And she said there was one point where she was praying and she heard this, this sense from God that God was saying, you need to forgive that man. They called him the monster. In the family, he was just known as the monster. You need to forgive the monster. And so she, it frightened her. She went to her husband and her husband said, you know what, I had the, the same vision. And so they prayed about it. They ended up writing a letter, not of forgiveness, but of just compassion they sent it through someone else because they said, you don't, you don't want to send it directly to him. Um, he received the letter. They got a letter back from him uh, acknowledging his wrong, expressing sorrow. Eventually, through letter writing, they developed a relationship with him uh, to the point to where, to where at one point they had a moment where they forgave him. We forgive you for killing our son. In prison partly because of this experience, he gave his life to the Lord. 
And she tells the story. She wrote a book about it. But um, in mo- the, the, the last blog post she did on this in, in her life, she wrote this, fairly long quote, but I'm going to read it for you because I think it gets to the heart of what we're talking about. She writes in her blog, this journey isn't over. God continues to write the story and forgiveness is not an event. It is always a story. The correspondence has continued between myself and this Martin. That's the name that she gives to him. Um, he remains in prison, but his spirit is free. He has used my book as the basis for his first Many sermon in prison. So he's giving a mini sermon about the, about the victims who forgave him in prison. He readily shares my book with other inmates and guards. He's made me a mini pulpit from lightweight wood from my Bible. He asked me to use it whenever uh, I tell our story of forgiveness. He writes that he loves me. And I can fully accept it. Last Christmas he wrote, Your family is my only family now. God at work. Last spring, God gave me a powerful new, a view of the future. This vision wasn't expected or sought, but was confirmed by my husband having a very similar one at the t- same time. We were standing and singing a simple song of gratitude to God, the song that you guys probably seen here, uh, Jesus, Thank You. In our little inner city church, as we repeated the phrase, Once your enemy, now seated at your table. A clear picture began to form in my mind. At first it was me, a sinner and an enemy of God, now invited as a beloved child to his table. Like a kaleidoscope, the picture kept changing as we continued to sing. Next it was my dining room table, replete with my husband, our children, their spouses, and our five granddaughters, a scene we've enjoyed many times. This time there were more people sharing in this meal. I clearly saw that seated... With us was the man who killed our son and his children and his grandchildren. The final frame clearly showed that Jesus Christ was standing at the head of the table. Amazing. Once enemies of God and of each other, now celebrating together at the table of our Lord. I do not know if God will allow this to ever happen in real life, but I know it was a clear promise from God that he continues to work in our lives and in the life of Martin and his family. I've shared this vision with Martin, and we are praying that it will be fulfilled. The power of forgiveness, she writes, and reconciliation can only come of God. Steve Saint says, God never wastes a hurt if we allow it to write it, write it, let him to write into our story. God is writing a story that can only be written by Him. Only He deserves the praise and the glory. I do not know what may be next in this story, but I'm confident that it will continue to be amazing. Brothers and sisters, do you see love, forbearing, forgiving, as, as a story that God's writing in your life? Do you see yourself wrapped up in a story that's far bigger than you could imagine? Do you see that story taking you places that you can't possibly think you could ever go? Do you see Jesus writing that story himself in your life? If we're going to love, 
We have to embrace the love story. The love story that started with God's love toward us in Christ. And now is meant to carry on our love toward others because of Christ. Practically applying. If you're here today and you have tended to live your life going out into the world and seeing people as impediments, try on the clothes of compassion. Try on the clothes of love. If you're here and you find yourself constantly struggling with, with perceived issues and wrongs of other people, practice the art of bearing with other people. Learn the joy. Learn the peace. See the stress go. And you just don't let it affect you. And if you're here and somebody's done something to you and you've committed yourself to not forgiving them, Know that this love story contains warnings. Places not to go. Things not to do. But it also contains promises. That those who forgive will be forgiven. Those who love much, who've been loved by much, will love much. And love can be shed abroad in your heart. Dr. Martin Luther King said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Let's be those kind of people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for myself, God. Lord, I am irritated far more than I would like to think. I, there are times I just feel like I love the church as the people. Lord, I'm convicted as I speak. Lord, I want to live compassionately. I want us as believers to live compassionately. I want this church to wholeheartedly love you and love one another and love the lost who exist outside these doors. Not knowing your love, show through their love powerful witness of you. In the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, according to the love of God in Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected for us, and for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.